Hey, this is Hojo, and you're listening to me on Baseball and Barbecue with my two best friends, my new best friends, Jeff and Leonard. So y'all enjoy it, okay? Studios of Baseball and BBQ in Belmore and Wantaw, Long Island. This is episode number 168 of Baseball and BBQ, where the BBQ stands for? R-B-Q. Good food, good times, good friends. That's what it stands for. I'm Jeff, the old coot, Cohen. And the mad ranter. And the mad ranter, along with Leonard Hollywood Averman, Leonard, number 168 is here. It's here, and I am excited. Let's do it. All right. And you know what? BBQ stands for barbecue, and that's it. And it, it also stands for baseball. Baseball and barbecue, it's all here. Baseball and barbecue. Baseball and BBQ. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you say it, it's fun and let's yes. have a good time. Absolutely. All right. So let's tell everybody who we have coming up on this episode. Jeff, who do we, we start with? We have a pitmaster extraordinaire. Slap your daddy. That's right. Harry Sue. And and special guest host with Harry Sue. Who would that be? It's our very special favorite Ottoman. Doug, the rogue cooker, shining. And then we have Dan Good, who has written a book, Playing Through the Pain, Ken Caminiti and the Steroid Confession that Changed Baseball Forever. You remember Ken Caminiti? I certainly do. It's a very good book. And uh, it's sad. It's the yeah, whole. It's a sad book. It, it, you know, it is a sad book. Jeff, bet online remains your number one source for all your sports betting this season. Everything from NFL and bowl season to eSports. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup information, player news, and game trends at BetOnline. BetOnline features live betting, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. We are the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite leagues and events. So head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50%, that's right, 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure you use promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards bet online it's where the game starts and jeff i'm so excited episode 168 harry sue is inspirational 
And I think everybody's going to know exactly why when we hear this interview with Harry Sue. So let's do it. It is a pleasure and quite exciting to be joined by two great pitmasters. One being our friend and beloved guest co-host, Doug Scheiding. And the other is a very special guest, which we have had the pleasure of researching. And if there is one lesson we have learned from researching our guest, it is that life is what you make of it. And while you need to work hard, you need to try new things without fear of failing. Because as our guest has done, he has succeeded and in turn is using his barbecue fame to try to make the world a better place. His professional life can be viewed in stages, and it is the current stage which barbecue fanatics worldwide are fascinated with. He's the winner of more than 30 grand championships and more than 100 first places, including a history-making first place in all four meat categories in the 2009 Way Out West Barbecue Championship. He competes using an 18-inch Weber Smoky Mountain, which convinced me to make that my first smoker. And he spreads barbecue love worldwide. We are so excited to welcome Harry Sue of Slap Yo Daddy Barbecue to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome, Harry. Hey, Leonard, Jeff, and Doug. How are you guys doing? Oh, doing well. Thank welcome, you. Harry. Right. <laughs> Harry, I get, I get the honor being the uh, guest co-host to ask the uh, first question. I'm going to go back. To when we first met the Houston Rodeo 2016, I called you out of the blue because you didn't know who who I was probably before then. And then I called you to let you know that I used your jailbird chicken on my chicken that won the Houston Grand Championship and offer. And you said it was on your bucket list to attend. And so I invited you out and you graciously came helped and did whatever we wanted to do and i and now you cook every year at the houston rodeo so tell me a little bit about you know how you you uh, got excited about the houston rodeo and you continue to cook it now every year well first off uh, doug uh when i first got that call from you on the phone i thought you were pranking me (laughs) you know i i'm uh, the head pit master for a team in texas and and I used your chicken rub and I beat 400, 500 teams the first place. And I thought, okay, this got to be a prank here. <laughs> <laughs> but lo and behold, uh, yeah, I think we we kind of connected almost immediately, right? We are brothers for from sure. different mothers. Exactly. It was such a great trip. And I uh, went down to Houston and got a chance to meet Doug and his family, his wife in person. And uh, we had a wonderful time. And it was a start of actually a, a few different meetings. Am I correct? We, you and I. You also helped me out. Uh, was it on a uh, movie set, a shoot set? Yeah, it was on the set of Smoked. I Smoked, helped yeah, out we on ended that up too. on some kind of crazy pitmaster show, and Doug was kind enough to help out. And uh, since then, I've been fortunate to be invited to cook on David Welch's team Firecraft Barbecue for the Houston Livestock and Rodeo. And uh, hopefully, uh, we're, you know, we're looking forward to doing it again next month. I know. We'll we'll see you next month. Have, so, did you start cooking for him in 2017? The the uh, next year, I, I or was kinda, it? I always start as the dishwasher. That's kind of how I start on a team. And <laughs> if they want me to do more than doing dishes, then I'm more than happy to to jump in. And it's been a fun journey. I have kind of morphed from being a full time competitor to sort yeah. of being a kind of a, what I call it. I call Myself now in my Harry version 2.0, I'm more like a BBC documentarian 
I, I'm not I'm no Steven Spielberg, but I really have a lot of fun going around the world, meeting people, and kind of documenting how they achieve their barbecue legendary status. I, I've had an opportunity to cook with Famous Dave, opportunity to cook with Tootsie, Tomanes, uh, even the folks down in uh, Goldies uh, in uh, uh, Fort Worth. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I cook with uh, uh, CJ and Mama. I, I cook with so many different teams, and I love the role now I play where I get to mentor my 4,000 students that I trained the past 12 years and watch them become successful, hang out with all the barbecue legends around the country and the world. I just came back from Ireland. I had a chance to cook with some of the top pit masters in Ireland. I was in Germany and had a chance to meet them. I was in uh, Australia. Uh, I was even in Kuala Lumpur, actually teaching a class to what I call crazy rich Asians. So it's been an amazing (laughs) gig. Uh, Doug, I think you know that I retired from my 30-year IT job last December. I'm sorry, previous December, December 21. And uh, I just finished my first year of retirement and having a fun time at it. Congratulations on your retirement. Uh, I want to go back to what you said. You traveled all all the world. I want to know, since you used to fly 747s, do you fly yourself all over the world? (laughs) No, I I fly United, uh, uh, Southwest or Southwest, uh, depending on how you call it. (laughs) Southwest. yeah, I, I've uh, been. I've had so many of my friends who travel tell me the horror stories. You were a licensed pilot. You were flying seven forty sevens. Yes, I I did that back uh, what in the eighties, and uh, I learned my uh, my first accounting uh, theory: uh, last in, first out. Oh. <laughs> it's called LIPO. <laughs> right. So I, I realized that uh, you know in life uh, you, the important lesson I learned in my early twenties was you know no one owes you a living. And uh, it's a really tough world out there. And you just got to be ready to equip yourself with the skills and the knowledge and experience to be able to survive uh, whenever calamity hits. And, and I think that we all we all need to make a living. And sure. uh, I, I've spent 30 plus years kind of making a living. Uh, and now I get to do barbecue and hopefully make a little bit of uh, making a difference uh, to, to the lives of other people. Mm-hmm. Now, you're kind of an ambassador of barbecue. People know who you are. They enjoy watching your YouTube videos. But Doug said something very interesting that relates to to how you got started in barbecue. He mentioned bucket list. So oh, yeah, I'm a completely accidental pit master. I, I tell people up front, I taught a lot of classes, train a lot of very, very uh, highly esteemed chef. And I always start my class by telling them, you know, I'm a total quack. You, you really shouldn't <laughs> listen to me. I have zero credential, as Doug will attest. I, I have not attended culinary school. Uh, I don't work in a restaurant. I, I, I build data centers for a living. So I, I'm completely, totally unqualified. The only uh, caveat I have is that I won a lot of uh, competitions where it's a double blind. And I always tell people that I really don't have any kind of a cooking pedigree. I, I cook like an MMA fighter, you know, MMA, mixed martial arts. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not trained. I can use judo. I can use kickboxing. I can use wrestling <laughs> on you. And when I cook, I cook with no styles. That's why whenever I'm on any kind of TV show, they say, what is this idiot IT guy? What's he doing to his his uh, lobster? Why is he doing this to the lobster? He's doing that. He's mixed the Italian method with the yakitori method, with the Indonesian satay method. What the hell is he doing? So that's kind of how I, I love to do is throw a bunch of different styles into my cooking. And uh, you, you guys know that in barbecue, there's not a lot of room for creativity. <laughs> so since I started my YouTube channel, I, I put out like something like 500 videos. I have another wow. 300 recipes on my website. So it allows me to kind of push the envelope of the things I enjoy doing. Uh, for example, I enjoy making curries. I enjoy cooking on my walk. So I, I kind of have a, a broad range of interests. And now that I'm retired, 
I can spend a lot of time doing that. So cooking competitive barbecue was on your bucket list, right? Which you did. Uh, yeah, it was completed right. by accident. Uh, you remember the movie The Bucket List from Morgan Freeman and Jack right. Nicholson mm-hmm. a dozen years ago? My One of my project managers came to work and said, we are a bunch of IT nerds. We should do something with our life before we kick the bucket. And then she thrust <laughs> a piece of paper in front of us. We wrote down a list of bucket list. And they say, let's make it interesting. Let's write stretch goals for each other. So let's say, Leonard, I always knew you wanted a water ski, but you never water ski. So I'm going to write you, Leonard, go take a water skiing class. Uh, Jeff. Go take your bicycle and rent a bicycle in France and ride a tour de France because that's always what you wanted to do. Hey, Doug, you always wanted to be a ballroom dancer. Go, go take a ballroom dancing class. Oh. So they forced me to enter a barbecue contest because I used to bring barbecue to work. And I never knew the barbecue was any good because I learned how to cook a barbecue when I was in Lubbock, Texas. I went to Texas Tech. So 40 years ago, I went to Tech and I kind of cooked barbecue for myself. Never imagined it was any good. So my coworker said, you got to enter a barbecue contest like the one you see on TV where you turn the food in in a white styrofoam box. So I said, fine, I'll just do one contest and get you off my back so you don't bother me anymore. And I went to the contest and I entered as the bucket list team. And then they said, that's boring. And they told me, hey, let's come with a fun name. And I said, any name you want is fine. I'm never going to use it again. So they said, apparently in the South, when you eat something you really, really like, you want to slap somebody. So since I'm a daddy, they say, call you slap your daddy. I said, that is the stupidest name I can think of for a barbecue team. <laughs> but I, I just humor my coworkers. I did it. And lo and behold, I, I went to my very first contest. I won it. And then the rest is history. One more thing on that bucket list. I read that you wanted to take a stand-up comedy class and, uh, and yes, do stand-up. Yes. Uh-huh. And we ended up uh, uh, getting on a company, uh, what do you call, talent show like American Idol show. And uh, my coworker, uh, Janice, who got me started in this barbecue, she's a great singer. So we decided to do a uh, little Gladys Knights and the Pips. So I was one of the Pips. And uh, trust me, I have two left feet. So it was really a funny, hilarious show. We ended up winning. And then somebody surreptitiously videotaped our performance. So you go to my website under About Harry, you see that little video clip of Harry as one of the pips in the background, singing and dancing, completely out of tune and out of step. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You need to make sure you, you tell people what your website is so that they can all go to that. Because <laughs> we definitely don't want to mi- miss that. Well, Oh, yeah. You Mitch- know, it, it's a, it, after you see it, you cannot unsee it. So that is really <laughs> a, a very a very embarrassing clip. But, you know, it is there. And I always tell people, um, you live life vicariously and with intensity because life is brief. And since then, you know, I reached a point where I really don't care anymore. You guys just let it all hang out. When I was first offered to be on a TV show, I thought this is the craziest thing that I've ever happened to me because I had a random phone call from, uh, you know, John Marcus, who's the producer of Pitmaster, and he wanted to put me on the show. I said, you don't even know who I am. I'm just this little, small little team in California completely unknown and and you want to put me on TV. And I had no idea that I would meet three world champions out of the six or seven teams on the show. And if I had known that, that I would be on a kind of a basketball show with LeBron, I would have run for the hills. But I ended up on a show. And lo and behold, the, the most surprising thing was in the season finale, I ended up beating them all, which is completely something I never possibly imagined. It's the Cinderella story. Well, it sounds like your first cook-off was a Cinderella story, too. So, yeah. Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I took my uh, – I, I ordered the, the pits from Amazon. Uh, it came in on a, on a Wednesday. I, I took it to a place called Palm Springs in Los Angeles on a Friday. Packed and my entire kitchen in my little minivan. 
And I had no idea what I was doing. And I just cooked the normal contest entries and ended up winning just like that. It's a crazy, crazy story. I, I want to, the people to realize that in life, sometimes you just have to do something outside your comfort zone. We're so used to the routine in life. We want to do something that's safe, that, that is without risk. Sometimes in life, the best things in life happen when you take that extra step and you step into the great unknown because the great unknown could be such a liberating step that will free you to be who you really are. And now I, I've had a chance to find out who I really am is I really enjoy going out meeting people, share, showcasing the, the different kinds of barbecue and sharing all my first place secrets with people because people can't believe it. On my YouTube video, I give away all my secrets. I, I don't hold anything back. I show you exactly my recipe to win first place USA in brisket, first place in chicken. And they can't believe that I actually show my technique without charging a single penny. Wow. Yes, that's great. Yes, that's and great. and and all the going around the world and 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 being an ambassador and kind of you know doing the documentary. Uh, are you getting paid for this, or you're yeah. funding this, or they're they're helping to offset some of the cost, or? Uh, I, I accept all of the above. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so as long as I get a get a chance to travel, so I, I've had different gigs where they just take take care of my airfare, they they cover my expenses, and I'll go. Uh, my 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 job my goal is really not so much to make a living out of barbecue because I'm a government retiree now. I keep reminding myself I, I get a check every month, and that is enough for my lifestyle. I live a very simple life. I, I don't have any exorbitant hobbies. So for me, anything I can do with barbecue, other than barbecue, just yeah. covering yeah. my expenses is all great. And I've had all of the above. Sometimes uh, because I just sell products, some people let me come to sell product. For example, I did a big gig in Cologne, Germany. You think barbecue is big? When I went to Cologne, the barbecue trade show, just the barbecue area alone is six soccer stadiums. Wow. Just stop and think for a second. We think that our, when I go to American trade show and I think our trade shows are big. When you go to, to Europe, it's completely bonkers. They, they, they are just insane, crazy about American barbecue. And they just want to learn the magic, the mystique of American barbecue. And they really know how to, what I call, spend money and scale. Just to give you an idea, the average, uh, what do you call, a vendor booth is uh, maybe about 100 feet by 100 feet in size. Wow. Yeah, it's six soccer stadium. It's, uh, it's, I know, unfortunately, what happens, uh, one of my sponsors was GMG. So GMG had a booth there. So I had to cook the food in the GMG booth and then take the food back to the booth that I was assigned to do demos under the American barbecue umbrella. And it was like a 10-minute walk just to get to my pit check my food and then walk back to my booth and do stuff and I walk back. So you can imagine I'm cooking briskets for three days doing demos. So I had like 20,000 steps a day just walking back and forth wow. between oh my the gosh. pit and my, my demo area. Well, that's the way to keep in shape. Uh. Uh, yeah. And I, as I travel around the world, everybody is really enamored with the mystique of American barbecue. When I was teaching in Australia, in Sydney and in Perth, uh, I mean, Australia is a huge country. Just imagine, right, if you flew from New York to Los Angeles, it would take about, say, four or five hours. To try across the Australia is six hours. So that's how big Australia is. Yeah, yeah. And they have like 30 million people. And they are just absolutely crazy over barbecue. I had a chance to cook a kangaroo. I had got a chance to cook wow. an emu. Uh, and they are really very passionate about barbecue. And they live and breathe uh, American-style barbecue in Australia. And they have some of the best uh, beef there that I had a chance to cook and sample. Wow. I just wanted to mention that your website is stopyodaddybbq.com. And when I went first one on at the first page, and I wanted to ask you about this. You have a uh, grilling life skills program for, for, uh, for at-risk kids. Could you tell us about that? 
Uh, yeah, I uh, told you about how barbecue is about spreading love and kindness and uh, trying to not just make a living, but make a difference. Uh, I do my very best to kind of use my barbecue efforts for philanthropy. So a lot of the net proceeds from barbecue goes to watch charity. So I support like Operation Barbecue Relief, which is Save the Children Foundation and Operation uh, Homefront for the veterans and the active personnel and their families. So for me, barbecue is a way to kind of give back. So I, I don't kind of like make a living from barbecue because I'm a retired government employee. It allows me to do that. One of the things I'm very passionate about is the next generation of pitmasters. And uh, in every city in America, there are kids that are at risk and they are called at-risk youth. They are in different programs under different uh, social workers' umbrellas. I was very fortunate to work with a social worker in Northern California where she has a bunch of kids under her tutelage that she tries to guide so that they stay on the right path. Now, the life circumstances on these kids are not caused by them. They may have parents who are drug addicts and, you know, they are they're involved in gangs and in jail, incarcerated. So the, the kids are the ones that are suffering. So part of this program is we, we go out and spend a Saturday and uh, we teach them how to cook barbecue and try to change the environment that they're in to give them hope that there's a new life. So some of these programs uh, have been spawned around the country because I put out the guide on how to do these programs, how to partner with your local social worker in your inner city to build these barbecue programs so you can bring these youth to your program. You volunteer half a day on Saturday, and between 8 a.m. and 8 a.m. and noon, you teach these kids your pitmaster skills. They, in turn, then can use that as a credential to get a job. So like one of the students that we trained, he finally got a job in a restaurant and he coded that the training that we provided and he coded oh. my name as his credential. So I thought that was, that's super cool because people tend to know who I am after they Google me and say, oh yeah, he's a student of Harry Sue. He may be a student for only six hours, but it counts. <laughs> <laughs> so he was able to leverage that in, into a role, into a restaurant as a apprentice. And that's kind of what we want to do is in barbecue, it's a matter of not what you collect. Uh, you know, I have plenty of trophies, right? The trophies are sitting in my garage. They, they don't do anybody any good. But our skill, our knowledge, and our uh, expertise, right? We all, like, all of us just give it away. You will have a chance to change the world. That's yeah, that's, it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, Harry, I mentioned in the intro that, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, I saw you using the Weber Smoky Mountain. And at the time, I wanted to get into smoking because uh, what what I was doing was I was taking my Weber gas grill, I was making a foil packet, you know, getting wood chips and soaking them and making the smoker packet and using the gas grill. And I really wanted to get into smoking. So, you know, the research, I was researching all these smokers and I was on the fence. I didn't know which way to go. And I saw the show with you using the Smoky Mountain and that put me over the edge and I knew what to get. And I, I haven't been sorry. I love the Weber Smoky Mountain. And I'm sure, like I said, a lot of people probably do. Weber should pay you. <laughs> you should get like a portion of every sale of Smoky Mountains because I'm sure that you generate a lot of sales for them. Absolutely. The uh, idea that I always tell people is uh, as a pit master, I encounter a very common problem around the world and my travels. It's called GAS, G-A-S. GAS stands for a pitmaster syndrome. It's called gear acquisition syndrome. 
Many pitmasters or wannabe grillmasters are paralyzed because they can't cook. They can't cook their brisket. They can't cook their rib because they're paralyzed because they don't feel they have the right equipment. They're obsessed over the equipment. It's not the right pedigree. <laughs> it's not the right color. It, it, it's not the. It's not ceramic or it, it's metal. It's brick or whatever it is. Right. I always tell people there are many people in America and the world today who can cook better than me with a shovel, and a pile of wood and some chicken wire. Okay, if you want, if you want to go up against Tootsie Tomanes, I was going to say Tootsie. Tootsie, all Tootsie. he has is just a shovel. That's all she has. He can outcook me on a pork steak any day, anytime. So I tell people, don't obsess over the equipment. Pick a piece of equipment that you're comfortable with. I always tell people, pick the equipment that gives you joy. If you have joy cooking with a Weber Smoky Mountain and you love it, wonderful. You have a green green egg, you have joy, great. You have a Pelicooker Green Green Mountain, cook it get joy, wonderful. We have a $50,000 smoker, go ahead and cook it and have joy. So long as you have joy, it doesn't really matter what equipment you use. And I'm always fond of saying it's always the pit master, never the pit. And everything that I teach you and I show you that I've done is a three-hour argument and Jerry Springer fist fight. <laughs> once you get past that, that, that it's not a pit, it is not your, uh, what do you call it, equipment, then you are ready to start cooking and have fun. And in my videos, I explain and demystify the science and the art of barbecue because you need the science and the art in order to be successful. And if you cook for your family and you can get some championship results, my goal has been accomplished. Yes, yes. Uh, I, a little different. I, I want to go go back to that, but a little different than Lynn. My first smoker was a Weber Smoky Mountain. And th that's, that's the one that has the water pan in the bottom, right? I wanted to throw that water it needs anyway i wanted to customize it i kicked on it three times and i gave it away i said just give it away and i just i built my own uh ugly drum smokers that's what i started for a period of time i built ugly drum smokers for myself and for some of my friends and stuff but yeah i think tell me about what you you just said something about the science and the art and i am totally about the science of cooking and i know with your technical background that you you're into this you know from your science scientific approach to cooking and how has that helped you in your cooking and your competitive nature from uh from a competition standpoint you're, you're bringing science to barbecue well i i think that i have a little bit of alton brown nerdiness in me so when i'm okay. uh, doing a demo and i'm talking to the audience if i told you guys that the way the secret to cooking great barbecue involves the non-enzymatic pyrolysis of amino acid it will probably turn everybody away. <laughs> so I've learned to kind of not talk like that anymore. So I just teach you that, hey, guys, crust equals flavor. <laughs> if you don't establish crust on your brisket, you're not going to get flavor. If you have the best Wagyu brisket in the world, you have the best seasoning in the world, you have the best smoker in the world. But if you don't know the basics of how to establish the crust, you're not going to get flavor. And then I end up with then telling people a little bit more because for people who are super nerdy who come to my school i tell them the kind of the science part the what i call the, the the phd stuff but i try to keep everything i do at a much higher level so when i do my videos people have chastised me and saying hey you you are too nerdy <laughs> we, we lost I, you i get that same thing stuff, I, right yes so, exactly. so now i i try to address to my audience in, in a much simpler way harry taught you bark equals flavor no bark equals no flavor. So next time when you cook barbecue, whether it's your ribs or your chicken or your brisket or your pork butts, if you don't have flavor, that means that you didn't know how to establish the mallard reaction, which is the crust. So once yeah. you do that, it's all going to be good. So what I try to do is I try to distill the art and the science into 
sound bites that most people can grasp. Sound bites, okay, yeah. Sound bites in yeah. layman's terms, yeah. Yeah. So I teach people like say whenever you had look at your pit, right, and you see black smoke coming out, do something that's bad. If you see white smoke coming out of your pit, do something that's bad. When you see no smoke, you're doing it right. So I just exactly. try to keep it as simple as I possibly can. And then without launching into a long explanation about the paralysis of, uh, of the uh, lignin, talking about the different resins, talking about cellulose, hemicellulose, talking about the, uh, the evaporation point, the paralysis point of Fahrenheit 451, talking about carbonyls, talking about phenols, and so on. I, I try to stay away from that. But some people really like that. So on my channel, sometimes I go into deep, like I call rants, Harry's deep dives. And some people <laughs> oh. actually like to listen to my, my rants for 20 minutes on, on the signs of like wood and smoke and, and hemicellulose and lignin. So I, I kind of try to, like a shotgun approach, try to hit everybody, make sure that everybody's taken care of. You know, you, you talk about your, your classes and I, I'm looking on, 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 on your website and you do have classes monthly. Uh, the first quarter of 2023 is already sold out, which is Yeah, they, they sell out actually six months in advance because uh, I, in the past, a lot of people wanted classes and I, I used to teach like 20 over classes a year. And I realized that, you know, I love to travel. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> I, you, as much as I love to spread barbecue love, I, I try to do it more on my YouTube channel now and trying to spread more knowledge on YouTube so that more people can can receive that knowledge. But for, for classes, I, I try to do at least once a month because, my, you know, Joe, who's my business manager, always bugs me, Harry, you got to have more dates because people are lining up. Say, I, I Yes, but I would love to travel. I remember I'm retired now. I'm supposed to be taking it easy. But, oh. you know, it's all great to be able to kind of spread the joy of barbecue love because I, I think that there is such a hunger out there, people who want knowledge. They want to know how do we create that wonderful, mouth-watering, moist, succulent brisket. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of folks are unable to do it after, even though they tried. And I have a lot of students to come to my class. Harry, you just taught me in six hours. You taught me 25 items in six hours. This is a barbecue insanity class. It's like drinking through a fire hose. I say, yeah, but I, I gave you three days of material in six hours. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, you, you might come away with the head really swollen, but I always tell my students, you are my student for life. So you have and these I, classes in, in Diamond Bar, California. So I'm assuming yes. people fly in from not just, the United States from, from all over the world to come to your classes? As far as Africa and Thailand. Wow. I had a lady from Thailand and she was a hospital administrator in Thailand. I said, what are you doing in Cal in California? My client <laughs> says, I went on the internet. I, I fell in love with American barbecue and I wanted to learn how to cook it. And I scoured the globe to look for instructor. I found you and here I am. <laughs> so teach wow. me everything you know. I say, wow, I, I'm not worthy. But I, I, I've been so blessed to have so many people around the world come and learn barbecue. And I think that what, what I want to say is that barbecue is, my opinion, the only true, authentic American food. We stole the hot dog. We stole the hamburger. We stole the pasta. We stole everything around our world. But no culture in the world that I am aware of, right, cooks meat for over 10 hours above ground. The Maoris and the Hawaiians cook it on an emu underground. The people in Mexico, South America, cook it in, in a hole in the ground. But no culture that I'm aware of, right, besides Americans, you know, cook meat above ground for over 10 hours. So this is truly a very unique, special, authentic American cuisine. And I'm just very privileged and honored to be able to do it well and be able to pass on that knowledge to the next generation of pitmasters. You know, Len, Len taught me how to uh, make pastrami. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, but I and I learned that from watching videos and other people. So and I just pass it on. 
Like, yes, yeah. the world is like a matrix now. You know, you know Matrix, Vikiano Reese, when they jack in sure. to the computer and then they download the tank, downloads the program to fly a helicopter. We have that today. Uh, I work in IT, so soon that will be a chip in your brain. And that's uh, going to happen. Yeah. You're going to expand your consciousness, your memory capacity, and your intelligence by these neural chips or connection to the computer. So like right now, right, when you want to learn something, like for example, I have a plumbing problem in my home now. All I need to do is go to my phone, punch up how to fix uh, the plumbing problem. And I have the best experts in my phone. I watch it for eight minutes. I go upstairs with my toolkit and I'm able to fix the problem. That has already happened. And that will be revolutionary because the way the world is working, AI and machine learning, you are going to have that capability in an implant into your brain. You're wow. going to be a half cyborg and half, half a human <laughs> being. And I, I'm not kidding. That's coming. It's not if because right now you can't leave home without your phone am i correct That's the phone true. has 11 sensors yeah. you uh -huh. only have five the phone can even the phone can even tell how level you are the phone can tell you where is magnetic north you can't only a pigeon right. can so you you are you cannot function now without a phone so soon that mm -hmm. all the functionality of the phone will be in you because you will have the chip wow. and there's already eight companies working on that and they are very wow. successful Wow. So it's coming. It's just a matter of time before humans become smarter. I say that to you because I worry that our intelligence hasn't kept pace with our evolution of our wisdom. Okay, we have people now with a finger on the trigger that can shoot off 2,000 nuclear warheads. They can completely destroy us. And then we, in turn, will press our red button and 2,000 will go the other way. Yeah. And this beautiful blue planet called Earth will be a wasteland and you and I will all be gone. So I, I hope that the world ha will have more wisdom. That's why when I go out and do barbecue, I use barbecue as a vehicle to promote kindness and tolerance. Like in my uh, annual New Year message, I told people that for 2023, my resolution is I want to try to do three things better. Number one, when I open my mouth, I hit send on my email or I re respond to a troll, I'll learn how to ask myself, is what I'm going to do, is it necessary? First test. Number two, is what I'm going to do, is it truthful? And number three, is it kind? So I realize that if I am going to go about my life, making sure everything I say and do is truthful, necessary, and kind, that the world will be a better place. And I'm encouraging your viewers and readers to try that approach before they do something, ask themselves, necessary, truthful, kind if the answer is yes then do it if it's not doesn't it's not yes don't do it and just a simple simple way of kind of looking at the world that i believe each one of us does so uh the world will be a better place yeah that that goes beyond barbecue that's just a way to live your life that's a, yeah. it's a beautiful thing you know harry doing the research i saw i want to ask you about john willingham's cookbook i yes. saw that story and I just, I read that and I kind of, I felt, uh, I felt sad when I read that. And could you, could you go into that, that John yeah, Willingham? So, uh, for those of you not aware who John Willingham is, he's a pitmaster from Willingham Barbecue, one of the most uh, highly regarded, uh, most legendary pitmasters in America. He developed one of, one of the very first things called the Wham Smokers that's in the Smithsonian Museum. I uh, uh, started my barbecue journey by reading his book many, many decades ago. I had no idea that I would one day have an opportunity to try to meet the, the man, the legend, and uh, my mentor. 
I uh, reached out to my friends in the Pacific Northwest Barbecue Association, whom I heard rumor told me that they were cooking on John Willingham's team in Memphis in May. And I thought, why don't I wrangle myself a dishwasher role <laughs> on John Willingham? <laughs> that way I have a chance to meet my, uh, my uh, mentor and the person I really admired who kind of got me started in barbecue because he published, I believe, one of the very first competition barbecue books in America. It's called Ch Championship Barbecue by John Willingham. I actually have it on my shelf in the back. And uh, I was headed down to Memphis with the opportunity to be the dishwasher on the Willingham team to meet my my uh, mentor and my idol. And uh, before I got there, uh, he passed away. So I was mm. devastated that my hero passed away. So I reached out to my the family and said, you know, I'm, I'm this guy from California. Uh, you know, should I come to visit the team? Are you guys going to be cooking? They say, yeah, John would, would want the team to continue to cook the Memphis in May, even though he's not here. So long story short, I flew to Memphis and met the family. They, they apparently knew who I was from my social media presence. And they say, guess what? Uh, John's not here, but we want you to cook the ribs. <laughs> so I say, what? <laughs> so it's like almost like going going somewhere and then being told that, okay, LeBron couldn't show up. So can you just, uh, you know, understudy for him? So I ended up going into his trailer where the man stood and his energy was there for decades. And uh, the, the family asked me to help them cook the rib entry. So I, I said, well, you know, maybe I, I, I always cook ribs with sauce. And then they told me, no, John doesn't use sauce. So I said, oh my God, I violated the first rule. I, I've said something blasphemous. I introduced sauce into the John Willingham uh, cooking uh, trailer. And they said, no, no, just follow what you want. And I, I actually uh, made three sauces, sauce A, B, and C on a cocktail napkin. And I placed it on the sample. I had the family and Paul Holden, who is the captain, uh, have them sample the sauce. And they liked a particular sauce. And they said, go ahead and use that on the ribs. So that year when I was there, they actually finished the highest they did in many, many years. And uh, last year when I was uh, at Memphis in May, John Paul Holden showed me the cocktail napkin. They, they decided to frame it up because that was a momentous moment that I, they ended up putting ah. sauce for the very first time. It was a sauce concoction that I made for that particular event. And they actually had the actual cocktail napkin. So if you watch my Memphis in May video, you can actually see that same cocktail napkin that started that whole journey of my relationship with the Wailingham family. So kind of every year now they've been inviting me back to cook Memphis in May. So this year I'm super excited uh, because uh, they assigned me to cook the exotic meat entry, which is exactly what I love to do. So I'm going to cook some crazy ass armadillo or, or some kangaroo, kind of kangaroo, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, kangaroo, uh, uh, gator or whatever it is. So I'm armadillo. Really, really forward. Uh, armadillo. They, you know, there's a website that sells armadillo. They're like four hundred dollars each. They're not cheap. Wow. So I, I'm going to try to to find one and maybe do a test cook. So if any of you want to try armadillo, we call it, used to call it roadkill in Lubbock, right? You know, a roadkill. Right, you yeah. Hit, you hit speed bump, every time you hit a speed bump on a road, it's an armadillo. And uh, now, yeah, apparently, you can buy them now and cook and cook them. Wow. Those are expensive speed bumps, $400 uh, yeah, each. Right, shock, shock. I mean, a, a big one is like $450, not, wow. not, not counting shipping. Well, speaking of Memphis in May, and uh, I know that you're going to do something with my friend uh, Bill Dumas, uh, the Sausage Sensei, yes. yep. and and tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing up there. Okay, so uh, for those of you not aware, Bill Dumas is my brother from a different mother from uh, Austin, Texas. He's known as the Sausage Meister. I, I first met him of all places in Australia. I was in Perth teaching a class, and all of a sudden, I met this guy in a cowboy hat. And uh, he spoke funny because I expected he, him to speak like an Australian. And he spoke with, spoke with a Texan accent. I said, wow, that's kind of weird. I met an Australian 
who speaks with a Texan accent. And it's when I found out that he's from Austin, Texas, invited to be one of the guest instructors like me in Australia. So Bill and I have had a, a collaboration because he is a sausage maestro. He can take any dish, explode it, and stuff it in a tube. I've had the best supreme pizza sausage in my life. I've had the best <laughs> blueberry sausage. Blueberry. Yes. Blueberry, yeah. So he makes a Smurf sausage that is completely purple, and it's actually a dessert sausage. And I did not even know that you could make a dessert sausage. So Bill and I uh, have been collaborating, and he's been teaching me about uh, sausage. And whenever I go to Texas and I know to do a barbecue crawl, he is a, a encyclopedic pitmaster and a historian. He knows everything about everything in Texas. And we're talking about going back 60 years. So I love to learn from him, document his knowledge so I can put it on online so people can learn the history of some of the barbecue temples of Texas, the history and the traditions of the different families that are involved in barbecue. So Bill and I go back a ways and uh, I'm going to try to see if I can collaborate with him to create some crazy uh, what do you call a uh, team entry? Because every year in Memphis in May, there is a uh, what do you call a country that's being honored. Like last year, it was Ghana being honored. So a lot of teams did their decorations based on a Ghana kind of a color scheme and decorations. For example, last year in Ghana, I did not know that they paint their chickens fluorescent pink. And the reason they paint their chickens fluorescent pink is so that the baboons will not eat them and attack them. Yeah. Wow. I, I did not know that. Yeah. So I, I told uh, Paul Holden, the captain of the Willingham team, that I should do something Malaysian because that's the country being honored. Since I was born in Malaysia, I might be doing some crazy ass sausages from Malaysia because we oh. did a, a few sausages of, uh, for a festival at the restaurant where Bill works called Brotherton's Barbecue in Austin, Texas. It's one of yeah. the Texas top 50 restaurants. So uh, Pitmaster Winnie from Fullerton, California was there. So she made some sausages for Daniel Vaughn, who is the food critic from the Texas Monthly. Barbecue so well, since I was there, I couldn't resist the temptation to make a throw in a couple of extra sausages that I kind of created on the fly with Bill. So we made a Malaysian wedding, Budan, and we made a spicy anchovy candy sausage. <laughs> So I know it wow. sounds weird, but but it's really pretty tasty. And uh, I was able to slip a couple of these uh, off-menu items with Daniel Vaughn, and he had a chance to try them. So I thought to myself, wow. So Bill has now uh, got my feet wet into the sausage world. So we definitely will try to create some wonderful sausages for Memphis in May for the uh, country entry, if we can. Oh, cool. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. Well, uh, we appreciate your time uh, as as the guest host, I also get get to ask the the closing, the the closing questions. Oh, hold, so, on. hold on, hold on, what? On, hold on. I didn't know that. I didn't know you were gonna. I didn't know you were doing a Mariano Rivera. I, I'm just the setup. Oh, so I'm oh, okay. Go ahead. Middle Go ahead. innings. Yeah, I just Harry. I want to ask you because I, I see that obviously you've traveled all over the world, and the one thing that I thought was fascinating, another thing that was on your bucket list was the cooking in Alaska, what do they call it? The midnight not No Northern Lights, the Northern Lights. Northern yes. Lights, right. Yeah. Could you so tell us tell us about that cooking under the Northern Lights. You were cooking a steak or something. Could it sounded fascinating. So a quick story is uh, I uh, kind of got acquainted with the Alaskan Barbecue Association through Mike Bowles, who's the president. 
And uh, he uh, invited me to Alaska to kind of help them jumpstart barbecue because I, I kind of have done that in different countries. I helped jumpstart the barbecue in like the UK, jumpstart the barbecue in Australia. So the, the Alaskan Barbecue Association needed kind of a boost. So I went up there, uh, helped kind of be the MC and color commentator for one of their events. And I taught, uh, taught some mini classes in Alaska to kind of help the Alaskan Barbecue Association recruit more membership and then to kind of expand their repertoire of uh, different things that they did. So I, I did mention to Mike Bowles and his wife, Amanda, that I had a bucket list item. I always dreamed that one day I would be able to do something special, like cook a steak underneath the Northern Lights. For those of you not aware what the Northern Lights are, they are these wonderful light shows of green and purple lights that you see in the sky, especially if you are north in near the North Pole. Uh, and uh, he was so kind. Uh, not only did he host me and let me stay in his cabin in in the in the uh, uh, away from the city, but uh, he was able to round up something very special called a musk ox. So for those of you not aware, a musk ox is kind of like a bison, but it's a special bison that lives near the Arctic. It's a cold weather no. bison. They're very rare. You're not allowed to hunt them unless you're a native. So somehow he was able to get me a, like a five pound musk ox ribeye to cook. He found oh, me a wow. nice Weber Smoky Joe. And uh, I had an opportunity to fulfill my bucket list by starting up my Smoky Joe underneath the Northern Lights and cooking a musk ox ribeye. That was like completely amazing, amazing experience to be able to do a bucket list item like that. So since then, I've decided I'm going to spawn new bucket list. I need to go to Bora Bora and cook a lobster in the water on a little pit. I need to go to Iceland. So you know anybody who knows how to make uh, extra long telescopic tongs? I would love to cook a steak on lava in Iceland as one of wow. my trips. So I decided that I'm going to make a bucket list of going around the world and cooking barbecue in all these different places. Uh that are very, very unique in their own nature. Like uh, Iceland is where the earth crust splits and one third of all the magma on earth comes through Iceland. So half of Iceland is pushing towards Europe and half of Iceland is pushing towards America. And it would be wonderful to be able to cook a steak right there and that spot on earth. Wow. All right, so I am going to bring in the closer. No, 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 wait, wait, one, but, one. Oh. One, one more second. This is the eighth inning okay. now. Yeah. So hold on. <laughs> I, so Jeff's going to come in. See, this is the thing. We we use we're very coordinated, but I think we're all excited of it to speak to you. I just wanted to say, Harry, we talk about bucket lists. You are on our bucket list, so I want to thank you because having you on baseball and barbecue was on our bucket list. So that's one item that we get to check off, and it was. Everything we could have wanted and more. So I thank you for that. Here, 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 Len. Uh, I just wanted to ask you about your your products, your, your sauces and your rubs under the Slap Your Daddy uh, label. So could you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I actually uh, started making products for competition for myself uh, a dozen years ago. And uh, I never tried to sell any of those products until uh, someone contacted me out of the blue after the TV show called The Pitmaster Season 1. He says, Harry, you don't know who I am, but I, I uh, make rubs. And would you like to sell your rub? I say, well, sure. You know, I don't make any money from rub. Any, even a dollar is fine. And I was just completely amazed that he put my rub into these little plastic bags. And we sold $1,000 in the first month back in 2008. Wow. So since then, right, I've kind of dabbled a little bit on the rub side. And a lot of people pester me whenever I travel. They say, you know, why don't you put out some rubs? I want to cook ribs. I want to cook these things. So uh, after I retired uh, in September of this year, within nine months, I put out 15 products. 
Wow. So I, I'm wow. kind of one of those uh, A type people that I can't just sit still. So instead of building data centers 50 hours a week, I put the hours into building products. So I launched 15 products on September 20 uh, of this year, of last year. And I'm surprised one of my sauces already won a Scovie Award, a second overall USA for a hot barbecue sauce. And a lot of teams are sending me pictures of them using my Texas brisket magic. I have a umami bomb. Uh, I have a, a Seuss SCA steak, con- steak rub that people are using to win. So what I do know is I do know that the stuff that I blend for my competition actually works for the backyard and the competitor user. So I've been able and very fortunate to have the time now to release all these products. And uh, I put them on websites so you can go to my website and, and look for them. And what I've done is uh, I, li- I realized a lot of people like what is known as a collection. So somebody wants to win a rib contest. They don't have time to go figure out how to do it. So what I try to do is I say, okay, I use this two sauces and three rubs, and I want first place in ribs. I'm going to put that as one item, and you can just click it and just buy it and see if it works for you. And I'm just so amazed that teams are doing that. They send me pictures of them holding the trophies. I just had a team from Texas told me, we've been for seven years. We never won. I use your brisket magic and your umami bomb. And look what, I have a trophy now, my first GC. So I thought, wow, what a great story. Let me let me swing by and say hello to you. So I went back and, and met the team, Mike, and then we, we shot a little video. So, so a lot of this stuff will now kind of start appearing on my channel because I really, truly want to tell the world that you, you live basically in life in three phases. The first phase is when you are from age 20 to 40. You go to life after college, you learn from as many masters as you can. When you hit phase two, which is age 40 to 60, you really need to be the best you can be, the best engineer, to be the best accountant, to be the best father, become the best mother. When you hit age 60, like I have, right, it's time to give it all away. So when you are in phase three of your life, your job and your role is to give everything you learn away to people. That's why people cannot believe it. When I showcase my first place recipes without anything right on YouTube and I show people exactly what I did to win first place chicken, first place brisket and so on. So I always encourage people that life is brief, live with intensity. You can't take it with you. All you need to do is look at the actuarial table for your demographic to find the point in time when out of 100 of your peers, 50 have died and 50 are left. That's called the average age. Right. And it varies by demographic and your your tradition and your culture and your background. So subtract. So let's say the average age of death is 76 in America. So if you are 66 years old, you only have 10 years left. So you got to ask yourself, what am I going to do with my 10 years? Am I going to continue to work? commute two hours a day to downtown LA, or you're going to say, leave that job behind and let me use my remaining 10 years for something more meaningful, traveling around the world, cooking the musk ox underneath the Northern lights. <laughs> Bucket list. Bucket yes. Bucket list so. yes. Live life with intensity because life is brief. Like everybody on this call, you guys have lost people through the last two years, through COVID and other calamities yep. in life. So people don't realize that all you have in life is your health. Once you don't have your health, you have nothing. You can have as many zeros as you want in the bank account, as many trophies as you want in the garage, but nothing truly matters if you don't have your health. Yep, that's that's entirely true. So, okay, well, we appreciate your time and 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 all the knowledge that you've brought to us tonight. I want to close with something that's near and dear and to your heart is barbecue love. What does barbecue love mean to you and the spreading of barbecue love uh, as it as it relates to your life and the lives of others? I think barbecue love is not about receiving, it's about giving. And I always tell people that in life, right, really, 
no, nothing is more important than the intangibles. You never see a U-Haul behind a hearse because you can't take it with you. So you really have to leave everything behind. <laughs> Uh, I always tell people that for me, barbecue is nearly a vehicle and a mechanism for me to promote something we call LRM. LRM, L stands for love. Because when people tell me that they don't feel loved, the first question I ask them, did you give any love? If you didn't give any love, how can you expect love to come your way? So if you give unconditional love to this universe, that boomerang of love will go into the universe and come back and hit you on the side of the head bigger and better than you can possibly, possibly imagine. So that's L. The next important thing about life really is about R. R has stands for relationships. Just like we may have had a conversation for an hour here, my hope is that this relationship and the energy from the relationship will continue to continue in your life. The relationship could be five minutes with a barista who made your coffee, but try to make that relationship meaningful. If you have a spouse and you live a lifetime, have that, that relationship become meaningful. And the last thing, before our brain shuts down and our human body shuts down, is the memories. So in life, make sure you accumulate a lot of good, positive, happy, joyful memories. Don't get gas. Don't worry about the pit you're cooking on. Remember that Tootsie has a shovel. If you can cook better than Tootsie using <laughs> your $50,000 smoker, more power to you. So LRM is truly the message I want to spread about barbecue love. Love, relationships, and memories. That's really, truly, barbecue is merely a vehicle to propagate LRM in the world. Some people have other skills. I have no skills. So for me, barbecue is my little contribution to the world to make the world a better place, focus on necess necessity, truth, and kindness. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, Thank you for that. Beautiful. I knew you would have a good answer to that. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you. That's words to live by. So check out Harry Sue at slapyourdaddybbq.com. He's on social media. He's on Twitter. Facebook, all these social medias, check him out and just explore his website. It's absolutely fantastic. Harry, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you all for having me. And anytime you want to shoot the breeze, uh, by all means, let me know. We can talk about any and every topic out there. Absolutely. And when you come to Texas the next few times, let me know and I'll try to make it up to see you and Bill. Yeah, up, I, up I, I, I'm trying to do a Houston crawl. I, I want to go back to some of the Houston places I like. Oh, okay, cool. And right, I need people good. who like to eat because I can't eat all the food. I like to order everything, right? And I can't eat all the food myself. So <laughs> I, if I can get a whole group and we can go and do a crawl and enjoy all the wonderful foods in Houston, I have to try that turkey lake hut. Oh, that place okay. is amazing. That, that That is the best turkey I ever had. Wow, okay. M maybe Doug will take you to an Astros game too, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Harry, thank you so much. Okay, thank guys. Thank you, Harry. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast. And if you want a lip-smacking, finger-licking good podcast, then you got to listen to Baseball and BBQ with Len and Jeff. They have the best guests and the best recipes on all the internet. So check it out. Baseball and BBQ. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Doug. That was an awesome, awesome interview. Jeff, you know why there's no why there's not a U-Haul behind a hearse? <laughs> because you can't take it with you. I, I'll tell that to anyone who's willing to listen to that. <laughs> really, I thought that was terrific. I mean, he just not only that, 
But when he was talking about L LRM, just really an inspiration. You know, you watch some of those those shows with him on there. He loves to cook barbecue. Doesn't need fancy equipment to do it on. And hey, he told us he was an accidental pitmaster. Right. Has a talent and just loves it. And loves sharing it, loves sharing his passion, teaching people, teaching underprivileged people, mm-hmm. teaching anybody who wants to not learn about barbecue. He yeah. has classes, he goes all over the world, and he's uh, just terrific, terrific speaker and, and, and pitmaster and, and just a great guy all around. Yeah, and I love the relationship that he has with Doug. I think that's terrific. It's just so funny how... You just never know who who has all these connections. They the degrees of separation, all that. It's nice that it's nice to hear the stories. He was he was terrific. Jeff, want to remind everybody, there is a company called BaseballBBQ.com. I don't think anybody who's listening to this doesn't know who they are. But if you don't and you haven't checked out their website, it is BaseballBBQ.com. I think you're really going to love what you see. Spatulas, tongs, cutting, uh, boards. cutting boards shaped like home plate or baseball jerseys. You could get anything engraved on these. And they have some other things. They have some clothing items. That's baseballbbq.com. And then there's the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. You like the authors that we have on this show? Like the one we're going to speak to next? Yes, exactly. Many of them including that guy, are members of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. Go to their site, support them. That's where you should buy the books. And you should definitely buy this book. Yes. It is It is good. It's it is. a good book written by a good man whose name happened to be Dan Good. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to that interview, give us a call at 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our ba- Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. We have a Twitter. Tweet, tweet. Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. We have a website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, follow, tell your friends. Jeff, you think I have a, a career as... If Twitter ever decides they want to do ads and 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 have a birdie, that I could I could be the voice of the bird. I think you'll pass. I think they'll pass. <laughs> and now we have Dan Good. Our guest Dan Good wrote a really good book, "Playing Through the Pain: Ken Caminiti and the Steroids Confession That Changed Baseball Forever." The book is nominated for a Casey Award. From Spitball Magazine for the 2022 Best Baseball Book of the Year. Dan is a seasoned book writer, ghostwriter, journalist, and editor. He has worked for the New York Daily News, New York Post, ABC News, NBC News, as well as local outlets in New Jersey and his native Pennsylvania during his journalism career. He can be found at dgood73 on Twitter. Welcome to Baseball on BBQ, Dan Good. Thank you so much for having me. Dan, this was an excellent book, not just on Dan Caminiti, but on the dangers of the sordid world of, da- of the dangerous vices that are really readily available to world-class a- athletes. But you focus specifically on Ken Caminiti. 
Could you explain why you did that? Had always intrigued me as a baseball fan, especially as a baseball fan of the 1990s. I, I really appreciated the way he played. I, I loved his all-out style, you know, that grittiness that he had on the field. And as he was, you know, coming forward and talking about the struggles he was facing, it really moved me, you know, from addiction to steroids and then for him to die so tragically so young you know, really just drew me into him and his story. And I just felt like there was more here and there was more that needed to be said about his life. And it just led me on this journey to to find out more about him. The book is called Playing Through the Pain, Ken Caminetti and the Steroids Confession that Changed Baseball Forever. Dan, I, I couldn't agree more with Jeff. Excellent book. Very interesting topic. Cannot say though it's a feel good book. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a happy book. You know, and I think you go into Ken's story saying this is going to be difficult. You know, but it, it's a really, it's a really difficult, unhappy at times, sad, depressing kind of story, and an important story, but a sad one. Yeah. So let let me start in in Cambria Park in San Jose, California. It's an idyllic na- middle class neighborhood. Lots of kids around, plenty of activities, neighbors looking out for each other. So tell us, when you were in doing your research, tell us what a popular kid Ken Caminiti was. He was a great kid. You know, the neighborhood people loved him. His, his neighbors loved him. His classmates thought he was funny. He was kind of a prankster. He always loved to play uh, sports, you know, and, and this was a reflection of his his father's influence. It was a reflection of his brother's influence. You know, his brother was two years older than he was, and he was always kind of tagging along. He was that younger brother, the little younger brother who was tagging along, which is kind of funny to think about when you think of him playing for the Padres, really beefy and sturdy and hitting home runs. And he was the younger brother, but he really was. He was in his brother's shadow. And, you know, I think there was a lot of love and there was a lot of just athleticism in that neighborhood. It was just an interesting time. And uh, he had a lot of deep, deep bonds and deep friendships that that dated back all the way there. You know, speaking of his father, the first interesting thing that I there may have been others, but with his father, how he told his coach, we, I don't want him using his arm. I don't want him to overuse his arm. He had a rocket for an arm. He did not want him to overuse it. It was almost like he was predicting that he would eventually be a major leaguer or, you know, now now they say that all these kids, you know, they throw too much and they they burn themselves out early. And and his father uh, took every caution to prevent that from happening. It is really interesting to look at that. And you look at the things that Lee Caminetti wanted for Ken. You know, he didn't want him to overuse his arm in Little League. He wanted him to switch hit. And there he is in the major leagues as a great switch hitter and somebody with maybe the best arm in the league. It was him and Sean Dunstan were the two best arms in the in the National League in the late 80s and early 90s. And it, it is really interesting looking at the way that his father understood his game and understood his talent. I think he really recognized that there was something special here and this was worth nurturing and protecting. Going back to his childhood, one of his friends, a kid named Dan Moretti, Back in the neighborhood, that's where he first met him, and he'll play a, a significant role in his life later on. But uh, I, I was surprised, I guess, how prevalent the neighborhood had a share of drugs and alcohol. Yeah, that was a really big thing, and it was interesting for me to 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 learn that too. I mean, 
these things just flowed freely. We're talking about drugs or alcohol. You know, he and his friends would go and shoulder tap somebody outside the 7-Eleven, get somebody Mm -hmm. to go buy beer for them. You know, this is like middle school age. You know, with older siblings, there was always things around. It was always kind of easier to get things. But uh, substances were kind of flowing through through Ken's circle of friends and Ken's neighborhood and community. And this was just kind of how it was back then. You know, it's really sad to look at some of Ken's friends and recognize that they're not here either anymore, that they had passed away as well from overdoses or other difficulties like that. You know, and that really puts it into a different context because you look at Ken as this very successful major league player, very public, very open. And yet he was facing a lot of the same difficulties on an addiction standpoint that other people who weren't famous were facing that, you know, this was something that was, you know, kind of um, happening throughout his his circle of friends. He had demons. And one of the things that didn't shock me, but it explained a lot was what when you get into the fact that as a teenager, he was sexually abused. We still don't know everything about it. You said that in the book, that it's kind of vague and, and we don't know who it was, but it was apparently it seemed like it was somebody that he knew kind of well, I guess. But that explains a lot. Yeah, I I agree. You know, I I think you look at the arc of his life and the struggles he faced in adulthood. And when I started to peel back the layers on what he revealed to people during his stints in rehab and, and what he talked about, the trauma he faced as a child, it did start to piece together some things. You know, it was really devastating to learn that. And you're right. I mean, there's pieces and elements of that that I don't understand. I wish I did. You know, I, I wish I could really get to the bottom of that. That That is that one continuing mystery among, you know, probably a couple others. But I would say that's the biggest one is, you know, I just it would be really nice to know just just for closure, just to understand. But, you know, to to even get little pieces of it for him to be carrying this burden for so long and stuffing it so deeply. I think that's something that happens for so many people who experience trauma, especially at a young age. They do everything they can to stuff it down, to bury it, to uh, turn their brain off, to disappear or escape somehow. You know, And I think when you look at Ken's difficulties with addiction and you look at some of the other problems he faced, it, it really does make a lot of sense. And it's it's so tragic to to piece it all together and understand you know, what he was really struggling with and what he was facing. There was another thing. The first time, I guess he was in, I think it was college, and he wanted to quit baseball. But he wanted to quit because there was a conflict between his dad and his coach. Explain that a little bit, what what he was going through. Ken was burned out from baseball. You know, I think that he fell out of love with baseball, you know, at the end of his high school days, early college days. And there was an obligation sense from him. He was a people pleaser. And I I think he saw baseball as a means of making people happy. And his father was a big part of that. If he walks away from that, if he gives up this gift and walks away, you know, what does it mean? How are people going to look at him? How are people going to look down on him? And this was a really difficult thing for him. You know, this idea that, you know, maybe he wasn't playing for himself. Maybe he was playing for his obligations, his his father, his teammates, everybody else's sense of what he could be. 
you know, and I, I do think he loved the game in, in some ways, but I also think that, you know, and, and this was something that came up in Andre Agassi's memoir as well, was this obligation that you're doing this for other people, that that you're not playing because you love this, that you're doing this. This is a job. This is an obligation for you. And, you know, I I, I think he really did struggle with that in, in trying to figure out what it would mean for him to be happy, you know, and, you know, I, I think he was really focused on walking away from baseball. He just didn't have anything else to to lean on. He didn't have anything else to go to. And he stuck with it, I think, out of obligation, in part because of obligation for other people. And obviously was very, very successful. But, you know, I think there was that uh, that that inner struggle there that he did fall out of love with baseball. Yeah. And he was, I guess, after college, considered to be on the 1984 U.S. men's uh, baseball Olympic team. And he, out of thousands, he was like one of the last cuts or something. And that team had Will Clark, Barry Locke, and Mac McGuire. That team was amazing. I wish I could have spent so much more time just diving into that team. I mean, B.J. Surhoff, so many players, Corey Snyder, Barry Larkin. I mean, there were so many great players on that team. And, you know, he got to cut the line. He didn't even try out. You know, all these other players tried out. Uh, in the fall of 1983 and early 1984, they're in these rounds of tryouts trying to make it. And he had a great game, great series against USC. And Rod Data was like, great, you know, you're you're there. Which was frustrating because, you know, then Corey Snyder was the best third baseman in the country, basically, at that point. And he was somebody who was really highly regarded as a prospect. Whereas Ken had slipped to the third ground. He, he you know, he was he was on the lower end in terms of all of this talent, he was on the lower end in terms of professional outlook. And Corey Snyder was the guy. And and it would it would be really tough to say, hey, Ken, you're going to start a, ahead of Corey Snyder. Obviously, things evened out in Ken. Corey Snyder had a solid career, but Ken had a great career in the majors. Yeah. But no, I mean, that, that, that team was traveling all over the place. They were waking up in one spot, driving here, taking a bus, taking a plane, you know, on and on and on for a month. And he was in that final round of cuts. And that was devastating for him, you know, because he really thought that he belonged. You know, he and Barry Larkin weren't getting enough playing time on that team. And which is really interesting to think about now. But, you know, and then there was Mark McGuire and Will Clark warring over who was going to play first base. So there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of um, patting each other on the back in the years afterward. But at the time, you're all competing against each other mm-hmm. and fighting for these, you know, 20 spots in this roster. It was, a, it was a really interesting time for Ken and kind of gave him a lot of momentum and motivation. Now he had something to prove leading into his professional career. Yeah, that seemed like the, he always had to have a chip on his shoulder to go on. You mentioned he, he was drafted in the third round by the Houston Astros. and. His first minor league game, it was played in, in less than 400 people there. It couldn't there have been nice. It couldn't have been too good. <laughs> there was no, there was like no one there. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of games like that for his, his first minor league season in Osceola. There was, you know, low attendance. It's funny because they actually made a baseball card of him uh, as part of a team set. And it's so difficult to find. I mean, I've been scouring eBay for the last 10 years and two of them popped up. And that was it. These cards don't pop up because no one went to the games. And that's where they gave away these these cards. But, you know, it was an interesting team that he was on. Rob Malicote was on that team. Gerald Young was on that team. There was a lot of talent. And yeah, obviously, Ken was the most talented. But there was a lot of there was a lot of talent in the Astros uh, farm system at that point. 
Yeah, and his manager that year was Dave Kripe, and their first year together was pretty good, but things got a little deteriorated when they both went up to single A. Could you talk about that? Yeah, they were they had a really nice season in 85, and then in 86, Ken and Dave Kripe, and a lot of the players from single A moved to double A Columbus, and the first half of the season was a disaster. You know, it just wasn't working out. Ken was struggling. He was throwing away the ball, which was something that happened from time to time when he was off of his game, even into the majors. Midway through the season, they they fired Dave Kripe and they brought in Gary Tuck, who was a longtime coach. He was kind of a baseball nomad. He bounced around. He was a coach with the Red Sox and the Yankees for a long time. And this was his first head coaching assignment. And he just turned everything around. They went wor- worse to first from the first half to the second half. Second half of the season, Ken batted something like 340. He was lights out, uh, and they ended up winning the league championship. It was a really special time for him. And I think there was a ruggedness. You know, there was this idea that I'm going to believe in you. You know, Gary Tuck had them, you know, working on the the infield, you know, working on the the dirt and the grass of the field, you know, before games. And it was just a really rugged, interesting team. And everybody who met him, liked him it, throughout the book he makes friends with everybody everybody and, and yet an insecure person but he hides that and he also uses alcohol to mask it yeah substances really worked for him for a long time being able to mask those things being able to blend in to you know turn down his insecurity a little bit and fit in and people loved him from every walk of life. People walked him, loved him from every station they were at. You know, men loved him. Kids loved him. Women loved him for all different kinds of reasons, but they all loved him and adored him as teammates, his uh, opponents, you know, people really were drawn to him, you know, and he wasn't somebody who said a lot most of the time, you know, he was somebody who didn't have a lot to say, but uh, when he did talk, people listened, and he was just a really good friend to people. He was somebody who went out of his way for people and thought deeply about what he could do to help other people. And I think uh, there's so many people around him who were appreciative of that and who adored him for that and loved him for that. Yeah. His first major league game was July 16th, 1987 for the Houston Astros. And I would say he had a pretty good debut. You want to tell us about that? <laughs> It's okay. You know, he's making every single play at third base. You know, he hits a triple for his first major league hit. He hits a home run. He scores the winning run. You know, he ends up winning player of the week award in his first week in the major leagues. You know, how's that for a debut? How's that for yeah. <laughs> uh, a start? I mean, and and that came after he hit a home run off of Tom Glavin in his minor league all-star game days earlier. So that was that was a pretty special week. But then he also he tells somebody, I forget who exactly, oh, this is this is easier than I thought it would be. And they were throwing him fastballs and like, wait, just wait. And the next thing you know, it's breaking balls. And he is actually does he get sent back to he he didn't he skipped triple A to yes. get the majors, but then he does get sent back to triple A or back yeah. gets sent to. Yeah, he 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 wound up back in AAA for 1988 when he started showing up late at spring training. But no, I mean the the near the end of the season in 1987, it was obvious that he needed to make some adjustments at the plate. Pitchers were exploiting his, his the holes in his swing, and 
you know, he needed to make some adjustments and, you know, that's the tough thing. I think when you, when you go from, when you compare triple A to the major leagues in terms of pitching, there's not a huge difference, you know, maybe at, at the major league level, there's more pinpoint accuracy, but there's not a huge difference when you're going double A to the majors, that's a big gap. And there's a lot of difference in talent level. And, you know, I think, you know, he needed to learn how to adjust and obviously he was able to do that throughout his career, but it's really tough when, you know, you're seeing fat pitches for a week and then people adjust and he couldn't, he couldn't catch up to that right away. And and during this time, was he using cocaine, pot, alcohol? I guess, when did he start using steroids? I guess this was before that, right? So it's interesting because a lot of people try to diminish his whole career by saying, oh, he used steroids. Yeah. Uh, he started using steroids in San Diego, uh, kind of near the end of the 1995 season. And then he really ramped up his steroid usage in 1996. So he was an all-star. He was a gold glove caliber player before he started using performance enhancing drugs. And in fact, you know, those early years in Houston, we'll say really after 1989, you know, 1989, he had a really good season. 1990 was when his cocaine use really picked up. And you can see that in his statistics, you can see it in his ability on the field. He wasn't the same player, you know, and it's, it's something that you can't really quantify, but you look at his, Mm -hmm. his road home splits and you're saying, okay, he's batting 200 on the road. What's happening. He was really running hard at night and, you know, and that bled into his, his talent on the field. And, you know, it really was uh, performance dehancing. Uh, mm-hmm. The things he was doing were taking away his ability. And the Astros kind of got tired of him from time to time. They really tried to work with him. They tried to help him. But there were points in time where, you know, for example, in 1990, when they traded for Jeff Bagwell, who was a third baseman, you know, they said, I don't know if this is going to work out. You know, I don't know if this player is going to be our future. And, you know, I think there was a lot of frustration from the Astros because they saw the potential of what he could be the potential of what we kind of saw a lot more when he was in San Diego and said, you know, we want more of that. We, the inconsistency was really frustrating for, for the Astros. Yeah. And I, I should say that the, he was with the Astros from 87 to what? 90, uh, 93, 90, 94. And they're pretty good teams. I mean, you had Bagwell, Biggio, uh, before that, Glenn Davis, Nolan Ryan, Mike Scott, pretty good teams. Uh, Hal Neal was, man- was his manager. Art Howe was his manager. Terry yep. Collins was his manager, but he gets traded in uh, 1994 by the Houston Astros to the San Diego Padres in a trade that had uh, D- Pedro Martinez. Not that Pedro Martinez, though. <laughs> <laughs> the other Pedro Martinez. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that trade changed the tra- trajectory for the Padres. I mean, that was a huge trade and getting Steve Finley and Caminiti together, you know, really changed the scope of the Padres. Also, bringing on this new manager named Bruce Bochy kind of helped, too. You know, there's a lot of things happening. There was a lot of things falling into place. But that trade was was massive. Yeah. And you're right. It did trade, uh, change the trajectory of, of the Padres. And he put it all together in San Diego. Four seasons with the Padres, oh, yeah. three gold gloves, two All-Star games, MVP, and a World Series appearance in, in 1998, which, uh, you know, they lost to the uh, powerful Yankees. But, hey, he made the World Series. Yeah. And I really think that without Ken, there is no World Series for the Padres because 1996, you know, him carrying that team into the postseason, winning the MVP award, it really put the Padres back on the map. And I think it gave them 
some hope and optimism for what was to come. So even after the 1997 season, when the Padres really struggled, they thought they had a good team in place and they ended up getting Kevin Brown, uh, trading for Kevin Brown, you know, really kind of building from there. You know, he was obviously not just the only player that they picked up Wally Joyner, Ashby, Trevor Hoffman in the Gary Sheffield trade. There were these pieces that they were acquiring, but I think Ken was really the centerpiece and the engine that drove that team. And, you know, the success that he had in 96 and helping them to the playoffs really set the tone for that World Series team two years later. Uh, Len, before I just, I just want to say that that year, 1996, where he won the MVP award, 40 home runs, 130 RBIs, and a 326 batting average. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. He was always playing through pain, though, because yes. it was initially when he was a kid, football. He he had hurt his shoulders in football, and he was always playing through pain. Part of, I'm not making excuses for him or whatever, but it's in the book. And, uh, you know, he, a lot of times, that might be another reason that he, you know, was medicating himself. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, painkillers were something he was using a lot in the early 90s. And it was that up and down. You know, he would use painkillers to dull the pain, but he'd need amphetamines to pick himself up, yes. you know, and then it's the up and down. But you're exactly right. I mean, those those injuries, that shoulder injury, you know, dates back to his, you know, football playing days, dates back to college when he separated it during a college game. You know, he was always battling through something, you know, and then diving on that astroturf, that hard astroturf that does a lot of damage to to backs and to knees. I mean, he was always fighting through something, you know, always kind of struggling to stay in the lineup and asking his way into the lineup when, you know, his managers didn't even want him to play. And the first game he was in, actually, the game uh, that Jeff mentioned that he had the triple in the home run. I think it, you mentioned in the book that he was on, uh, he took one of the amphetamines for that game, yeah. right? His very first game. And and he liked the feeling it gave him that jolt, you know, that so whereas the players would only would try to use them when they were tired after, you know, a day game after a night game or a late night out. And he just liked to use them all the time. He did. He liked the way he felt when he took these things. And, you know, he was warned. He was warned like, hey, you don't have to take this all the time. This is a sometimes thing. This is, you know, after the road trip. You know, we're doing a lot of traveling. Maybe you need to pick me up. You know, he was somebody who said, if I feel good doing this, I'm going to keep doing it. And, you know, I think he's always focused on being the best teammate he can be. And if the best teammate he can be is to take a pill or to inject the substance, he's going to do that because he's he's doing everything to help other people. And, you know, and and that sentiment made him such a great teammate, but it was such a, a personal detriment to him, you know, and something that was really difficult to, you know, try to to keep hammering and hammering. I mean, if, if you're just doing everything you can to play all the time, where's the end of that? You know, there's this competitiveness and it doesn't, it doesn't rest. And, you know, I think that was a pattern throughout his playing days of convincing himself that he needed to take these things to play when he was a great player without anything, without any substances. Right, we mentioned Dave Moretti earlier, and I want to talk about him being his, I guess, his steroid supplier. But it was fascinating that before they decided to go that, that route, that he sat down with, with Ken and his wife 
and explain how to do that. You want to please let us let us know about that. You know, I think Dave was really interested in doing things the right way as much as he could. You know, I know we're dealing with performance enhancing drugs. We're dealing with steroids, you know, but he he really cared about Ken and he wanted to make sure that Ken wasn't hiding anything from his wife. He wanted to make sure that Ken was doing things the right way. And he was really worried about Ken potentially not playing and then backsliding on his addictions, which he ended up doing anyway down the road. But in 1996, he wasn't, you know, and I think Dave saw this opportunity to keep Ken on the field, to do things the right way, to, you know, follow a doctor's orders, to to get buy-in from Ken's wife. And, you know, and that that got complicated, you know, because Ken's wife wasn't really on board with him doing this, you know, and this is another thing that, you know, it's scary, you know, steroids are scary, you know, they can be scary if, you know, you're just going into it blind. And, you know, even though Dave knew what he was doing, you know, there was an interesting story that Dave told me about this game in which Ken was playing in 1996, when he first started using steroids, and how he had bruised this injection point on his leg. And, you know, he's rubbing his leg on national television and Dave's calling him like, hey, you just told everybody that you're using steroids. Like, let's let's be careful here. You know, and he's telling the 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 training staff like, oh, I, I hit it on a table playing with my daughters. You know, I think there was a lot of sensitivity around people who cared about Ken of helping him to play while also recognizing that this was somebody who struggled with substance abuse and struggled to to keep things in check. You know, he was not somebody who was only going to do things part part of the way as we talked about a couple minutes ago and and that was a really tough thing and you know, you're trying to help him play and succeed and be successful but also worried that this is going to lead to something bad. So yeah, so so Nancy his his wife was wasn't on board with this, but he decided to do it anyway and I guess and not, not excusing it, but he went to someone who knows what he was talking about and how to cycle and how to use it. So he was yeah. trying to do it responsibly. Um, but did it, but he knew it was wrong, right? Didn't I mean it was an open secret in in, in baseball that it's performance handling drugs, and I, and they knew that uh, the commissioner, Bud Silly, could do nothing about it. That's what's so fascinating about that whole era because you can spin it to. Ken's doing exactly what he needs to do to help his team win. There's always this way to spin this whole conversation like, oh, he's only doing this to come back from injury. You know, and you I think we all as baseball fans try to play this game of, you know, if this is a fourth outfielder trying to make the team, yeah, I can ju- I can justify that. I can understand it. But if it's a superstar, oh, he's, you know, trying to break all the records and cheat the game. You know, I think Ken in some level knew it was wrong, but I also think that given all the things he had done in his life, all the struggles he faced, you know, the cocaine drinking, you know, all the other problems he dealt with, this wasn't as big of a deal as people probably think it was. And that kind of ties into his decision to come forward and talk to Sports Illustrated. At the time, it was like, oh my God, he's breaking the clubhouse code. He's he's trying to burn everything down. He wasn't. He was simply talking about his own sobriety and trying to make things right in his own life. You know, he didn't see this as the big deal that it became. And I think it was overwhelming in the sense that he didn't see it as that big of a deal, especially given the fact that after he used and after he won the MVP award, he's now directing players to his friend Dave. Uh, to you know get drugs from him, you know, and how now he's setting up this pipeline 
indirectly or, you know, through his own, you know, friendships in the game to help all these other players, you know, (laughs) you know, it's like you can see it as being wrong, but then you're like, oh, well, he's helping other players play to their abilities. He's helping his teammates. You know, it just it's such a complicated thing to go back and, and try to make sense of it all, because, you know, the performance enhancing drugs debate in baseball is never ending. And there's always these gray areas to it. Yeah, <laughs> we thought it ended last year with the Hall of Fame ballot, and then this year they had the contemporary ballots all over again. But yes, <laughs> it happened. Uh, you, you mentioned his wife Nancy, and she was really a rock for him. I mean, he she stood by him, and he she knew he had girlfriends on the side and, and whatnot. So she uh, was really uh, really cared for him and really stood by him. She did. She really tried. You know, it was really difficult because. You know, she's trying to hold the family together. She's trying to raise her daughters. She's trying to help Ken be successful in his sobriety and successful in his life. And, you know, he's backsliding and and hanging around with the wrong people. Uh, She was a rock. And, you know, and I think that she was so helpful to him throughout their marriage. You know, she was somebody who was always there for him. And it was really difficult when he continued to backslide because eventually, you know, as a spouse who's dealing with these issues, you say, I have to protect myself and my kids. You know, that that's the baseline thing. So it then becomes Ken off of his own trying to deal with these things. And, and you know, as they got separated and divorced, you saw the bottom drop out even more. Like there was, you know, this really big notable thing. And, you know, I think, I think Nancy brought so much stability and, and warmth to his life. And it was really tough to see that unravel because they, they really had, you know, a special relationship. And she was his high school sweetheart, right? Yeah. yeah. He started dating in high school. Right. I, I forgot the the name of the person who broke the story with sports illustrated. I know Tom Viducci picked it up, but who was the first person who interviewed him? Jules Bailey. Right. And, it and just, it, it's, it's fascinating because you think of the sports illustrated cover and you think of, you know, him talking to Tom Viducci and it's like, uh, you know, we talked to the CNNSI producer months earlier, a month earlier at this motorcycle convention in Vegas. And it's like, you know, this is a lot different. This isn't, you know, you look at the magazine or you look at CNNSI and you're like, you know, this this story came out in a different way than, you know, we initially maybe thought it did. So uh, I want to go back to his time in San Diego where I know it ended in 1998, but he was, I think he made a point in the book that if it wasn't to him, I mean, he really kept San Diego, you know, a baseball city. I mean, he was kind of responsible for uh, Petco Park. I think he was. And I think, you know, obviously Tony Gwynn was wonderful. And Mr. Mister Padre, like you can't uh, tell the story of the Padres without Tony Gwynn. Uh, and I think that that stadium might not get built without Ken. Uh, I really do. Because he's the one who helped them believe in 98. He's the one who gave them momentum to make a run for the for the playoffs. You know, they make this deep run to the playoffs into the World Series. And because of that World Series run, the stadium vote gets approved. Otherwise, maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe there is no Petco Park. I, I think that he deserves a lot of credit for that. And then then he goes back to the Houston Astros as a free agent. How was that homecoming? Not great. You know, there was some really great play at times, but it was inconsistent. He was injured a lot. And one of the biggest problems was, you know, I think... His family saw it as a chance for him to reconnect with Bijou and Bagwell, go back to Houston. 
but there were a lot of people in Houston he shouldn't have been hanging around with. And then on top of that, you know, the cord gets cut between him and his friend Dave. So he's not getting the steroids after the steroid package got intercepted by the Astros. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he's not getting his steroids from Dave anymore. Now he's finding it from other places and taking all these other substances that he shouldn't have been taking and really, really spiraling with his addictions. And, you know, 1999 was an inconsistent season. 2000, he missed, you know, half of the year and he was really, really struggling with his addictions. And, you know, I think the Astros got to the point where they realized, like, this was too far for us. This isn't going to work out. You know, he really needs help. This is this is beyond anything that we can deal with. He needs help. And, uh, you know, he goes to rehab after, you know, his 2000 seasons over. But it, it, it didn't work out well at, at all for him. And it was, you know, it was disappointing because I think he really saw it as an opportunity to reinvigorate his career. And it just continued to slide downward. I mean, he's in the San Diego Padre Hall of Fame, which yeah. rightfully so, based on those years, he he should be. Let's talk a little bit about when he's using. So he used steroids for about five years. Yep. He said, and, and I help me with this. He didn't. He said that half of the players. He thought half of the players were using. Yep. He did. Right. 50%. Yeah. That was quite, uh, and, and then of course it was after he said that, then later it was when Jose Canseco came out with his. So they both came out right around the same time. It was May of 2002. Jose Canseco was interviewed by Jim Rome and said 85% of players use steroids, but he wouldn't admit that he used himself. He said, I'm writing about it in a book, which came out a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. And then Ken comes forward and says, 50% of guys are using, and I used it to win the MVP award, and I don't have any regrets about it. That really changed everything, because now you couldn't avoid it. You couldn't hide it. Here was somebody standing forward and saying, yes, I did it. And the emperor is no clothes. And it really opened the lid because at the time you can look at Jose Canseco and says, okay, he has an ax to grind. I don't really believe him and trust him. He's kind of outlandish and ridiculous. Ken had credibility on this front. He had nothing really to gain by, by talking about that. He wasn't doing it for commercial gain. He wasn't trying to sell books. I know I am by talking about this right now, but <laughs> he himself wasn't, wasn't, um, you know, using it to do anything. He was just admitting to something and talking about it openly. And for him to be able to do that uh, kind of spoke to the character of him, his character, but it also spoke to, you know, just his desire to live his truth and, and you know, move forward with his life. Yeah, you mentioned uh, 50, whether, whether it's 50%, 85%, but, and, and the, the lid is blown open, but baseball really couldn't do anything about it because Bud Seeley, he was really... And I'm not a Bud Selig uh, supporter, believe me. But he really couldn't do anything about it because the, the Players Association didn't want to do anything about it. They, they they couldn't work together on it. It was this dance. You know, they all kind of, you know, Bud Selig didn't push the issue. I think because he recognized the Players Union had so much power. You know, looking back, I wish he had 
been more vocal about it because I think at a certain point fans would have fallen in line with that and said, yeah, you know, I think these players should be tested. Uh, you know, and then we go to 2003 with the blind testing, you know, if less than 5% of players test positive, this will all go away. And of course, more than that test positive, even with HGH use picking up at that point, you know, I, it just, it's so fascinating to look back now and recognize how they were both kind of playing chicken. Both sides were playing chicken. Neither of them really wanted to cave or say anything, but there was always these rumors, even dating back to like 1995, there'd be these articles one or two a year. 20% of players, 30% of players are using steroids. And it would just all get brushed aside because it was so much fun to watch Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds hit home runs. And, you know, why should we ask questions about that? Right, exactly. Making money. Why uh, why, why ruin that? Um, yes. You know, Dan, we, we really appreciate your time. I've got one or two more questions before we wrap up. You know, you, you mentioned that he went to rehab trying to get himself right. And he met, met, meets a woman, uh, Maria. In, in rehab and he's really uh they really have they formed a relationship uh yeah. this was this was was it before or after his divorce his marriage was ending so his right. he had been separated at okay. the time when he met maria in rehab mm -hmm. yeah and they formed a, a relationship trying to help each other out yeah they were I, I think there was a connection there i think there was you know some level of love there they were trying to help each other and you know it just it's tough you know when when someone deals with addiction, there's this need to put yourself first, you know, and when you have other people in your life who are also dealing with the same issues you are, and you really haven't resolved the issues yourself, it's really tough. You, you have to be selfish. And I don't think he was selfish enough. And that's not a knock against any specific person. But I just think he needed to be more selfish about his sobriety. And uh, and that was tough for him when he's a people pleaser and he's trying to help other people and leave people in his life and these negative influences kind of take over. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, as we know, Ken Kennedy passed away on October 10th, 2004, and it was in the Bronx, New York, just a few miles away from uh, where he, he played in the World Series. Yeah, it's it's really tragic to look at that, you know, so he had been in custody the week before days before, you know, a, a negative, a positive drug test, and he was released, he pleaded guilty, he was released, you know, and, and there was a lot of people in his life who were hoping that he would, you know, go to Montana and work on the land or go to California or go to a drug uh, treatment program and, and clean himself up. And, you know, he winds up going to New York to visit with Maria's son who had been dealing with some issues on his uh, from himself and you know it just it's tragic you know it's tragic to think about this guy playing in the World Series against the Yankees and six years later you know he's a body in a Bronx apartment building being taken down you know it's it's just it's tragic you know and it's it's not the ending that anybody wanted for him you know people loved him and adored him and wanted to see that bounce back they wanted to see him return you know and and be happy and healthy and it was just really sad that that didn't happen absolutely people love redemption stories they really do yeah he didn't unfortunately get that he rehabbed twice the first time he when he got out of rehab and he confessed to his team he confessed to his wife nancy and he tried to stay clean but obviously we know that he he was unsuccessful. He, he he did a really nice job for a long time. You know, after that first rehab stint, I, I think he really was committed to it. He was going to the AA meetings. You know, he was really devoted to 
you know, sticking through this and, you know, staying clean and, and, you know, it wasn't an easy road for him, but he did a really nice job of, of staying sober and being committed to it. And it's tough because you look at the height of his success. He's the MVP award winner. He wins the SB award, you know, and he can't feel comfortable in a, in a room full of people in New York city because, you know, it just, the moment's too big for him. And that, that's, what's really tough. You look at the fact that this guy was the toughest guy in the field, you know, he's playing through everything. And this is that one thing that, you know, he couldn't get past. And he really, really tried to, uh, to beat this, to, you know, move past his addictions, to, to rise above them. And it was really tough for him. Now, Dan, you interviewed a lot of people for this book. Nancy, though, she didn't want to be interviewed, right? No, is I, I really tried with this family, you know, dating back to 2012, letters, emails, phone calls, you know, when I would interview somebody close to them, I I try to get a good word in. You know, Nancy is a very private person. She always has been. She has been dating back to Ken's major league days. And, you know, I think some of the things that I found out through the reporting of this book and some of the things that are in the book that are so troubling and difficult, I, I think would give me pause to talk to me too if I were them. I get it. I understand. It's a difficult story to tell. You know, I I really was hopeful that I could connect with them and get more input from them for this book. You know, I think it would have been better for it, you know, and and that that's, you know, eventually you get to the point where you say, you know, it's time to to move on and publish, you know, but I definitely respect and understand their or anybody else's decision not to talk to me because it's a difficult story. It's a difficult subject. And, you know, there's a lot of just heavy emotions surrounding his life. And I, I get why, you know, people need to, you know, leave those boundaries up, you know, because it's a really difficult thing to, to come back to. The book is called playing through the pain, Ken Caminiti and the steroids confession that changed baseball forever by our guest, Dan. Good, Dan. Thank you very much for this for uh, joining us on baseball and book on bbq the book is up for the casey award by from spitball magazine for 2022 baseball book of the year dan you can be reached at dgood 73 on twitter and i know you have a newsletter out there because i subscribe to it so why don't you tell us where, to, where people can get that as well awesome yeah i have a Substack, dan good stuff at Substack. Uh, i like posting essays and and other fun things just it's been great to talk to you great to great to have this conversation yeah, we we appreciate it. We hope that you sell a lot of books. We like to think of ourselves as the Oprah Winfrey of <laughs> baseball and barbecue books. So uh, you will probably see your sales skyrocket. That would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and we, but no, we we appreciate the, all the research that you did for this book. It, it's really recommend this. We we recommend it. It's it's a sad tale. But it's something that it's important. I think it's really important. Tale. Exactly. Yeah, it's important for people to 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 read this, to understand. And and he wasn't just, you know, he wasn't just an addict. He was a person with, you know, who had a lot, like I said before, he had a lot of demons and and it just but some of them were not his fault as, you know, the sexual abuse and and so I mean, there there was one part in the book where you even said he didn't even know what his father did for a living. Yes. <laughs> Which was. Yeah, his father worked with kind of government projects, Lockheed, secretive stuff. And, 
I mean, that's that speaks to the secretive nature of his whole life. You know, the fact that your dad can't even talk about what he does for a living. That's such a basic thing. You know, and I think it it speaks to the larger themes of his life, which was we don't talk about this stuff and it just gets stuffed down. And and obviously that's not a healthy way to live. Well, Dan, thank you again so much for we wish you much success with with the book. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, good luck with uh, getting the uh, 2022 Baseball Book of the Year for Casey Award. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Again, as we said before, it's not a happy book, but it's an important book. Whether you feel that steroid users, first of all, should be in the Hall of Fame or not, that's the issue for another day. But it is part of the history of the game. Not all the history of baseball we know is good, but it's part of the history. And if you are a fan of baseball, and it's history. You take the good and you take the bad. You've got to be aware of all of it. And I think that this book really, it reveals a, a side of, of, you know, baseball that a lot of people, you know, it's, it's not happy, but it's important that people, you should know the history of the game that you love. Yeah. History. You should know the history. You should learn from history and make improvements going forward. Right. Yeah. And it's it's very sad that what happened, of course, but the book is exceptional. And uh, please, everyone, support Dan Good by getting the book. Support the authors on this show. We're going to have so many more authors in the future, and they do all the work. We just we get to enjoy the fruits of their labors. And uh, we really do. You know, Len, you mentioned the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And. We only have a couple of weeks till the announcement of the Hall of Fame right now. And we're recording this a couple of weeks early. So looks like only Scott Rowland, Todd Helton's over the as, as well. 70, he had 78.4%. Scott Rowland has 81.6% of the known ballots. Now, mm-hmm. there's about 69% ballots still have to be counted. So we have no idea who's going to get in. But as right now, those two have the enough votes if it, as they say, if it ended today. And I'm good with both of them. So, yeah, they were on our uh, on our ballots. Yeah. And uh, let's tell everybody that we are brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online is where the game starts. But you know what that means? We're not starting. We are ending. But we end in a great way. We end with the poet Shel Krakowski, the musician Dave Dresser, Jeff. What's the song from the musician and the poet that we're going to end with today? Baseball always brings you home. It certainly does. So everybody, we look forward to having you all back for episode 169.
Oh, wow.